0: Welcome, everybody, to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events, issues, and people. The person we're analyzing today is James K. Polk. I know what you're thinking. You've never even heard of James K. Polk. That is precisely the point. He is by far the most overlooked president in American history. He added more territory to the United States than anybody. He's the person most responsible for adding the territory that became these states. California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Nevada, Arizona, Utah, Texas, New Mexico, and parts of Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana. That's a huge amount of land. When William Seward was Secretary of State in 1867, he was the main person who purchased Alaska which added over 600,000 square miles to the U.S. Thomas Jefferson is best known for writing the Declaration of Independence. As the third president, his primary accomplishment was the Louisiana Purchase. That doubled the size of the U.S. and added over 800,000 square miles to the United States. Mostly because of that one act, Jefferson is rated as one of our great presidents. what about James Polk? In his one term as president, he added over 1.1 million square miles of territory to the United States. Why isn't he on Mount Rushmore? Why isn't he on any of the money? Although he accomplished so much, some people are squeamish about the way he acquired the largest portion of land, which is called the Mexican Cession. It's true. He instigated a war with Mexico so he could take half of Mexico's land. Jefferson is considered great when it comes to land acquisition because he bought the land from Napoleon Bonaparte without a war. I find these distinctions kind of funny. Number one, it's very questionable how much land was actually owned by France in 1803 when that sale went down. But a second and much more important point why these distinctions of land acquisition are disingenuous is how the European countries, and later the U.S. and Mexico, attained these lands. They simply stole the regions from the indigenous peoples. Nobody has any qualms about buying Alaska from Russia or the Louisiana Territory from France because those were fair and square purchases from Europeans but nobody asked the countless natives in the Louisiana territory or Alaska if it was okay for the U.S. to take those territories. People get uneasy about the U.S. defeating Mexico and taking their land, which, of course, had originally been stolen from the Native Americans. All right, let's get on with the story. We'll start with a very brief bio. First of all, Polk has the dubious distinction of being the inventor of the mullet. You don't believe me? Look at Polk's photo on my website or simply Google any pictures of James Polk. He was rocking a mullet in the 1840s. I'm not saying this was something to be proud of. I'm just saying he chose that hairstyle 140 years before it would become fashionable. Polk was born in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, in 1795. He graduated from the University of North Carolina and became an attorney in Tennessee, which, by the way, is a very noble profession, which I practiced for 31 years. He married a woman named Sarah Childress. They never had any kids. Sarah lived until 1891 and died at the age of 87. James died in 1849. That means she outlived him by 42 years. She has the sad distinction of having the longest widowhood of any first lady. As a young man, Polk went into politics and completely hitched his star to Andrew Jackson. Since Jackson was known as Old Hickory, people started calling Polk Young Hickory. People were very clever with nicknames in those days. Polk served as the Speaker of the House of Representatives from 1835 to 1839. So when you're watching Jeopardy! or playing pub trivia, you're going to know that Polk is the answer to so many trivia questions. The first trivia question is, who's the only President who is also Speaker of the House? Now you know it's James K. Polk. In 1844, Polk became the nominee for President by the Democrats he is considered the first dark horse candidate. And that term means that going into the nominating convention, he was not well known, and probably nobody, maybe other than Mrs. Polk, expected him to be nominated. So that's the second trivia question where the answer is Polk. Who was the first dark horse candidate to be elected president? In the general election, he defeated the Whig candidate, Henry Clay. The Democrats and the Whigs were the two political parties at the time. The Republicans would not be founded for another 10 years. Polk was only 49 years old when he was inaugurated as president. When he was nominated, he made a pledge that he would only serve one term. He kept that promise and did not run for re-election. In that one term, Polk accomplished everything that he said he would do as president. We don't expect presidents to keep their promises, but this guy did. He set out four goals for his presidency. The first was to cut tariffs. The second was to establish an independent U.S. Treasury. His third goal was to secure the Oregon country. And his fourth goal was to acquire the territories of California and New Mexico. By the way, he didn't even list a fifth major goal, which was to annex Texas. But he also accomplished that. I'm not going to spend much time on the first two goals because... Frankly, they're just not that exciting. Polk requested Congress to reduce tariffs on imports. Congress complied and Polk signed the Walker Tariff of 1846 into law. That was one presidential goal accomplished. The other domestic objective Polk promised was an independent treasury. This was accomplished with the Independent Treasury Act of 1846. That act established independent treasury deposit offices, which were distinct and separate from private or state banks for holding government funds. Instead of depositing public revenues in banks, government money was kept in the treasury building and in sub-treasuries in various cities. This independent treasury setup remained in effect until the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 created the Federal Reserve which is still in use today. So by his second year, Polk accomplished both of his domestic objectives. But he was much more interested in his other stated goals, which involved westward expansion. Let's dive into how America grew from sea to shining sea. After the American Revolution, the treaty that was signed with Britain defined America's boundaries as everything that is currently part of the U.S. between the Atlantic Ocean... And the Mississippi River, except for Florida and small coastal areas of Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. In 1803, Thomas Jefferson doubled the size of the U.S. by purchasing the territory of Louisiana from France. Napoleon Bonaparte was willing to sell this giant territory because he needed money for his ongoing wars against England and most of the rest of Europe. The Louisiana Territory covered most of the current state of Louisiana and the huge area north of Texas between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains. As part of the adams onis Treaty of 1819, the U.S. acquired Florida from Spain. That included the Gulf Coast sections of Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana east of the Mississippi River. So that was the situation when Polk ran for president in 1844. Polk and a lot of Americans believed in manifest destiny. They already believed in the idea, but the actual phrase had not yet been coined until 1845 by newspaper editor John O'Sullivan when he wrote that it was Americans' manifest destiny to overspread the continent allotted by providence for the free development of our yearly multiplying millions. In short... Americans wanted the U.S. to spread from the Atlantic to the Pacific. So who controlled what would become the western third of the contiguous United States in 1844? There were three blocks of territory which were acquired during the four years of Polk's presidency. The first area was the independent country of Texas. A second region was known as the Oregon country. And the third and largest area of land was the northern part of Mexico called the California and New Mexico Territories. I will deal with each one of these separately. Let's start with Texas. In the adams onis Treaty of 1819, the United States and Spain settled their boundaries in North America. Pursuant to that treaty, the area, which now comprises the state of Texas, was deemed part of New Spain. A couple of years later, in 1821, Mexico became an independent country and the U.S. and Mexico agreed to abide by the boundaries created by the adams onis Treaty. Mexico inherited a problem in their northeastern region of Texas. It was a very sparsely populated region and there was concern that the expanding United States might just eventually take over Texas. So Mexico encouraged immigration to the area. They allowed Americans to move into Texas provided that they obey Mexican laws. The great majority of Americans who moved into Texas were from the southern U.S. states. These people believed in slavery and brought their slaves with them to Texas. From the time it gained its independence in 1821, Mexico began eliminating slavery within its borders. By 1829, Mexico had completely abolished slavery in all Mexican territory. The outlawing of slavery throughout Mexico led to problems with most of the inhabitants of Texas. This was one of the main reasons that the people of Texas declared their independence. There was a short war in 1836 between the Mexican government and the Texans. And surprisingly, the Texans won even though they were greatly outnumbered and outgunned. On April 21, 1836, the Texans defeated the Mexican army at the Battle of San Jacinto near modern-day Houston. Most importantly, on the next day, the Texans captured the president of Mexico, who was also the commander of the army, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. They made Santa Ana sign a treaty to withdraw the Mexican army from Texas. The government in Mexico City refused to recognize Texas' independence. It didn't matter. The Texans acted as an independent country from that point forward. Since the vast majority of Texans had moved into that area from the U.S., most of the Texans wanted their newly independent country to join the United States. Much to the Texans' surprise, the U.S. government did not want to annex Texas at that time. There were two main reasons for this. The first was that annexation would probably lead to war with Mexico. Although the Texans considered themselves to be a sovereign country, the Mexican government never officially accepted Texas independence. The Mexican government still considered Texas as part of Mexico, and they made it clear to the U.S. that if the United States annexed Texas, it would mean war with Mexico. The other primary reason why the American government did not want to immediately acquire Texas was the issue of slavery. This issue had not reached its boiling point yet in 1836. Texas would be a slave state and disrupt the delicate balance between free and slave states in the U.S. In 1820, the first big conflict between North and South over the issue of slavery was finally resolved with the Missouri Compromise. The two main provisions of that compromise were, first, Missouri would be admitted as a slave state, and Maine would be admitted as a free state. By the way, prior to that time, Maine was part of Massachusetts. The second main part of the Missouri Compromise was an agreement that slavery would be banned in U.S. territories above the parallel line of 36 degrees, 30 minutes. When this compromise was reached in 1820, there was not much more U.S. territory south of that dividing line which could become slave states. It was only the area that would eventually become Arkansas and most of Oklahoma. And before people go crazy, yes, yes, I know, Oklahoma was not a slave state. Oklahoma didn't become a state until 1907, 42 years after the Civil War. I'm just saying that it was in the area which could become slave states pursuant to the Missouri Compromise. Adding Texas increased the slave territory by a very large amount. Most people in the free states of the northern U.S. did not want to add a giant amount of slave territory. So, Texas remained independent for nine years. But things began to change by the time that Polk was running for president in 1844. Texas was heavily in debt. The finances of the Republic of Texas were a mess. Further, there was always the threat that Mexico would invade to reclaim Texas. The British saw an opportunity. In the 1840s, most Americans were not too fond of their British cousins as a result of the American Revolution and the War of 1812. Besides those two wars, there were territorial disputes with the British in North America. Canada did not become an independent country until 1867. In the 1840s, Canada was still a possession of the UK. The enormous area, which we now call Canada, was not all called Canada in those days. Parts of it were called Canada, parts of it were called the Northwestern Territory, and a huge section in the middle was called Rupert's Land. It's way too confusing and might be the subject of a future podcast episode. But for today, I'm calling all of this area, which eventually became Canada, as British North America. So, with the explanation I just gave about the former situation in Canada, in the 1840s, the United States had the British along its northern border. In addition, the Oregon country, which I'll go into detail later, was being jointly administered by both the U.S. and Britain. So the U.S. already had British possessions On their northern and northwestern borders. Now the British were trying to get a foothold along the southwestern border of the U.S. in Texas. The British understood that they could not annex Texas or make it a colony as part of the British Empire. But the British were trying to gain influence in Texas. And their number one objective was to keep Texas from joining the United States. And it was clear that the U.S. was going to surpass Britain in population very soon. The U.S. already had a lot more territory than Britain and a lot more natural resources. The United Kingdom was the dominant power in the world, but they could see that the U.S. would eventually surpass them. The British really wanted to slow down this American ascendancy. The British did not want America to get any bigger geographically, so they were trying to make an alliance with the Republic of Texas. Here's what they offered the British would get Mexico to finally agree to Texas independence in exchange for the promise that Texas would not join the United States. And the British would assist Texas financially, and Britain would have special trading privileges with Texas. There were a lot of people in Texas who thought this was the way to go. They could remain independent, they would become viable financially, and the intercession of Britain would prevent an invasion from Mexico. Although there were those who wished to remain independent, the vast majority still wanted Texas to join the United States. This interference by the British helped change some opinions throughout the northern U.S. about the desirability of acquiring Texas. There was still a split of opinion in the U.S. on this issue, and a lot of people in the northern states still opposed adding Texas. It became a major factor in the election of 1844. Henry Clay, the Whig candidate, essentially was against annexing Texas. James Polk was very much in favor of adding Texas. There were other differences between the two candidates, but this was one of the main reasons why Polk was elected president. The incumbent president, John Tyler, had tried to push through annexation of Texas. But in June 1844, the Senate rejected the Texas annexation by a wide margin. However, things changed a few months later by November that year when Polk was elected on a pro-annexation platform. People in Congress realized this is what the American public wanted. John Tyler was a very unpopular president and was hoping to achieve something positive before his term ended. So between the time of Polk's election in November and the inauguration in March, Tyler again tried to get Congress to approve an annexation bill. Based upon the election of James Polk, Congress approved annexation. The Republic of Texas then ratified the treaty to become part of the United States on July 4, 1845. On December 29, 1845, Texas officially became the 28th state in the Union. I give James Polk credit for the annexation of Texas because it was his election that changed the mind of Congress and the fact that he had been pro-annexation all along. Also, the actual addition of Texas to the United States occurred during Polk's presidency. After Texas joined the U.S., there were still a lot of questions that needed to be answered. Would Mexico declare war on the United States for annexing territory, which they still considered a province of Mexico? And what were the boundaries of Texas? The eastern and the northern borders were easy to determine because they were the borders along the U.S. and the Gulf of Mexico. The big fight would come regarding what were the southern and western limits of Texas. I'll come back to this later because it becomes a major issue. But now we need to discuss the Oregon country. First of all, what do we mean when we say Oregon country? It was a huge region in the Pacific Northwest, roughly defined as everything north of California all the way to Alaska, between the Rocky Mountains and the Pacific Ocean. In the early 1800s, four countries claimed the Oregon country. The U.S., the U.K., Spain, and Russia. Shocking, right? Russia! That's because Russia owned what is now Alaska, and in those days was called Russian America. By 1845, when Polk became president, two of those countries had relinquished their claims to the Oregon country. In the adams onis Treaty of 1819, the U.S. and Spain set the 42nd parallel as the northern boundary of Spanish territory in North America. The 42nd parallel is now the northern border of California, Nevada, and Utah. What about Russia? Russia abandoned its claims to the Oregon country in two treaties. In the Russo-American Treaty of 1824, the boundary for the southern edge of Russian America, now known as Alaska, was set at the parallel 54 degrees, 40 minutes. The Russians relinquished their claims south of that line. The following year, the Russians signed a second treaty, this one with Britain, waiving any claims to the Oregon Territory. So that left the U.S. and Britain still calling dibs on the Oregon country. There were disputes as to the entire boundary lines between British North America and the U.S. Some of those issues were resolved in the Treaty of 1818 between Britain and America. The two countries agreed that the border would be the 49th parallel from Lake of the Woods in what would later become Minnesota to the Rocky Mountains. This formed most of the borders of what are now the states of Minnesota, North Dakota, and Montana on the American side, and the provinces of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta on the Canadian side. But they couldn't resolve the Oregon country dispute. So, they agreed on joint occupation of Oregon. Essentially, they kicked the decision down the road as to what to do with Oregon. The obvious solution seemed to be... Split the Oregon country at the 49th parallel. But some people in the U.S. thought we should get the entire Oregon country. The slogan was 54-40 or fight in reference to the northern limit of the Oregon country at the parallel of 54 degrees and 40 minutes. Yet most American politicians were a lot more reasonable and willing to split the territory at the 49th parallel. President Polk was one of those people with that reasonable position. So what was the problem? Why couldn't they just settle on the 49th parallel? The biggest dispute was Britain wanted all of the coastal land down to the Columbia River. That's the current border between Washington and Oregon. Britain wanted Puget Sound and access to the Columbia River. As I said, Polk was willing to settle on the 49th parallel. He was also amenable to throw in something to sweeten the deal for Britain. The 49th parallel goes through Vancouver Island. Polk was willing to give Britain all of Vancouver Island, but the two sides just couldn't agree. To break the deadlock, Polk gave notice to Britain that the U.S. was withdrawing from the Joint Occupation Agreement. Polk was posturing that he was willing to go to war for the entire Oregon country. This got the British attention. Britain had a lot to lose in the long run. The people moving into the Oregon country were about 90% from the U.S. So a lot of people were thinking that the U.S. might eventually overtake the entire Oregon country as the population greatly increased with Americans. Kind of like what happened with all the Americans moving into Texas. The notice that the U.S. was withdrawing from the Joint Occupation Agreement seemed to do the trick. In 1846, the U.S. and Britain signed an agreement whereby they continued the border along the 49th parallel all the way to the Strait of Georgia. That's a waterway which separates current British Columbia from Vancouver Island. As part of the deal, all of Vancouver Island was given to the British. That's still the border today between the Canadian province of British Columbia and the states of Washington, Idaho, and Montana. So Polk had added Texas and the Oregon country. These were incredible achievements which added great amounts of land to the United States. But he wanted more. Polk and many Americans dreamed of adding California. They wanted the U.S. to control San Francisco Bay and San Diego Bay. These are two of the greatest harbors in the world, and could potentially make the United States the dominant trading partner with Asia. Since Mexico was so weak, Americans feared that somehow the British would gain control of California. It was understood by everybody that California not only possessed two incredible harbors, but rich farmland and an abundance of natural resources. So, as Polk focused on California, he figured that the U.S. should also acquire New Mexico. Go big or go home, right? At that time, there were no actual definitions of what constituted California or New Mexico. Those two Mexican territories essentially covered the modern states of California, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and parts of Colorado and Wyoming. This was an enormous area. Polk made several overtures to the Mexican government to buy this giant region. It seems ridiculous that any country would even consider selling off around half of its land, but Polk and others thought it was a possibility because of two reasons. Number one, Mexico was in terrible shape financially, and this added to the instability of that country. Number two, the large territories known as California and New Mexico were both very sparsely populated. The Mexico government wanted to have people settle these regions, but they just couldn't. Due to the thin population and the volatility of the Mexican government, there was a belief that Mexico could not protect these territories from incursions by Americans. A lot of people on both sides of the border believed that Americans would eventually move into California and New Mexico and take over by sheer numbers, just like they did in Texas. Although there seemed to be some rational bases for believing that the Mexican government might consider the sale of those two enormous territories, in reality, there was no way that any political leaders could possibly hope to stay in power if they sold off half of their country to the aggressive Americans. If Polk could not buy California, New Mexico, either had to give up his dreams of acquiring those regions for the U.S., or use force of arms to coerce Mexico to sell those territories. James Polk and his supporters always denied creating a war with Mexico for the purpose of gaining California and New Mexico. Most historians don't buy it. I certainly don't. Polk knew what he was doing by creating an incident which would lead to war with Mexico. Earlier I mentioned how the southern and western borders of Texas were unclear. The Mexican government had always considered the southern-western borders of Texas to be the Nueces River. The Texans claimed that the Rio Grande was the dividing line between Texas and Mexico. When you look at a map, the mouths of those two rivers are only about 150 miles apart where they go into the Gulf of Mexico. But the two rivers really split apart. The Rio Grande goes way to the west when you go upriver from the Gulf. If the Nueces River formed the southern and western boundaries of Texas, that state would be pretty big. By using the Rio Grande as the southern and western borders makes Texas enormous. Now that the U.S. had annexed Texas, the Mexican position was that even if Texas was actually part of the U.S., the border between the countries. Was the Nueces River. Okay, now that you have that background, you understand that the area between the Rio Grande and the Nueces River was disputed territory. James Polk certainly understood this. That's why he sent part of the American Army under General Zachary Taylor to that region. In the spring of 1846, Zachary Taylor and his troops made camp on the north side of the Rio Grande, across the river from Matamoros, Mexico. The Mexican army in Matamoros demanded that the Americans vacate the disputed region. The Americans refused. So, the Mexican army attacked the American army on May 3, 1846. Remember, this was disputed territory. But Polk seized on this incident and argued that American blood had been shed on American territory and that this was an act of war. He requested that Congress to declare war in Mexico. There were differing opinions in Congress, but Congress approved the declaration of war. On May 13, 1846, the U.S. declared war on Mexico. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in the military matters. I'm just going to give you summaries of the main campaigns. The U.S. Navy controlled both the Pacific Coast and the Mexican coastline along the Gulf of Mexico the American Navy was able to blockade key Mexican ports. At first, the U.S. Army attacked the northern fringes of Mexico. American armies invaded New Mexico and captured the primary city in that territory, Santa Fe, in August 1846. The Mexican troops had fled, and so the Americans conquered New Mexico territory without firing a shot. However, there were revolts later on in an attempt to push the Americans out of New Mexico, but they were quashed by the U.S. troops. What about California? Although this was still a Mexican domain, there were a lot of Americans living in California at that time. Before U.S. troops arrived, some of the Americans in California took matters into their own hands. In June 1846, a few dozen American settlers seized control of the Mexican government outpost in Sonoma. That's just north of San Francisco Bay. Over the next several days, they were joined by plenty of other Americans. These citizen soldiers declared California an independent country. They even created a flag with a red star and an image of a bear and the words California Republic. So if you were ever wondering, now you know the basis for the incredibly cool flag that California has today. The Americans seized San Francisco, which at the time was called Yerba Buena, By July 1846, the U.S. Navy's Pacific Squadron under Commodore John Sloat captured the port of Monterey just south of San Francisco. Now that the American military was in California, the bear flag was retired after only a few weeks and the American flag was hoisted over the towns in California now controlled by the Americans. The Americans then quickly captured Los Angeles, San Diego, and Santa Barbara. There were minor skirmishes for the next several months, but by January 1847, California was securely in control of the American military. As I explained earlier, the war started when Zachary Taylor's army was attacked on the north side of the Rio Grande. Now that war was officially declared... Taylor led his small army of only a few thousand men across the Rio Grande into Mexico proper. His goal was to capture the city of Monterey. Sorry if this is confusing because I said earlier the American Navy already captured Monterey, but two different Montereys. The Navy captured Monterey, California on the Pacific Coast. This is a different Monterey. Although pronounced the same way, they are spelled differently. Monterey, California has one R in it. Monterey, Mexico has two R's. The Monterey-Taylor attack is not a coastal city. It's located in the state of Nuevo Leon, which is still part of Mexico. Zachary Taylor and his men captured this Monterey by September 1846. I don't have time to go through his long and interesting biography, but Santa Ana was back in command again. Yes, the same guy who was captured by the Texans in 1836 and signed the treaty which essentially ended the Texan War of Independence. In February 1847, Santa Ana led his army towards Monterey with the hope of destroying Taylor's American forces. The two armies met at Buena Vista. The numerical odds were ridiculous. The American army under Zachary Taylor Was approximately 4,600 men. Santa Ana had approximately 15,000 soldiers. The Mexicans had over a three-to-one superiority in men, yet the battle turned out to be essentially a stalemate. After the battle, Santa Ana withdrew his troops and headed south. Taylor and his army were left in control of northern Mexico. President Polk realized that invading and holding large sections of northern Mexico was not compelling the surrender he was hoping for. He understood that the American army would have to capture the capital of Mexico City. The defeat of Mexico started with an invasion of the coastal city of Veracruz in March 1847. This was a key port along the Gulf of Mexico. The American Navy bombarded Veracruz, and then General Winfield Scott landed his army and captured the city. You've probably never heard of Winfield Scott, But he was a hero of the War of 1812, as well as the Mexican-American War. And he had the fantastic nickname from his soldiers, Old Fuss and Feathers. He got that nickname because he liked wearing elaborate uniforms and enjoyed military pomp. Despite the funny nickname from his troops, he was a very good general. Scott led a successful campaign through the heartland of Mexico and eventually captured the capital of Mexico City by September 1847. Essentially, the war was over. After much negotiations, the two countries signed the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in February 1848. This treaty was very much in favor of the U.S. Here are the key points. Number one, Mexico renounced any claims to Texas. Number two, the Rio Grande was established as the border between Texas and Mexico. Number three, The US agreed to assume 3.25 million in debts that the Mexican government owed to American citizens. Number four, the US would pay Mexico $15 million, which would be worth around $500 million today. Number five, and the most important part, the US acquired an enormous tract of land known as the Mexican Cession. The Mexican Cession is the area which includes the modern-day states of California, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, most of Arizona, half of Colorado, and a portion of Wyoming. Pursuant to his promise, Polk did not run for re-election in 1848. Polk died only three months after he left the White House. He died on June 15, 1849, at the age of 53. We believe he died of cholera. He had the shortest time from the end of his presidency until the time of his death. As you know, there were some presidents who died in office and did not have any period of retirement. But this is another trivia question where Polk is the answer. Which president had the shortest post-presidency? Let me touch on what happened to a couple of other people. General Zachary Taylor ran for president for the Whig Party in 1848 and won. He died in office. General Old Fuss and Feathers, Winfield Scott, was the Whig candidate for president in 1852, but he lost to Franklin Pierce. Before you listen to this podcast episode, if somebody had asked you who was James K. Polk, could you have even said that he was a president, let alone anything that he accomplished? I think that as Americans... We are very happy that he acquired all of this territory for our country. Anybody who lives in the following states owes him a great debt. California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Nevada, Arizona, Utah, Texas, New Mexico, and parts of Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana. That's a huge amount of land. As a Californian, I'm very happy that California and the rest of the states I just mentioned belong to the U.S., Even if you don't live in one of these states I just mentioned, if you are an American and appreciate the fact that our country has such incredible resources, wealth, prestige, and is an international superpower, you should also be very thankful to President Polk. So why isn't he on the money? Why isn't he held up as a great American? It's guilt. Americans are very happy that Thomas Jefferson bought the Louisiana Territory and William Seward bought Alaska, Those acquisitions are considered guilt-free. But are they really? Just because we made deals with the leaders of France and Russia doesn't mean that the natives in those regions consented to the American acquisitions. But American history portrays those purchases as fair and square. But we feel differently about all of the acquisitions during the four years of James Polk's presidency. As Americans, we're happy that he acquired all this land but we're kind of ashamed of his tactics. Now, there's nothing controversial about obtaining the Oregon country, but annexing Texas and then conquering Mexico to get everything west of Texas to the Pacific feels a little dirty. The U.S. was a strong country who wanted territory belonging to a weak country, and we took it. As Americans... We have very conflicting emotions on this issue. We're very happy that the whole western third of the contiguous U.S. is part of the Union. We just don't like to think about bullying our weak southern neighbor. That is why Polk is not well known. We like having all of this land he acquired, but we don't like to think about how he got it. So, we tend to simply ignore James K. Polk and his presidency. That's it for today. Please subscribe to this podcast. Please like this and my other episodes. Ratings and likes greatly help the algorithms that determine the placement of podcasts on particular apps. So, if you are listening on Spotify or Apple or any podcast app that allows ratings, please give me a five-star rating. Please spread the word about this podcast to friends, relatives, coworkers, anybody you know. Check out my website, historyanalyze.com, where you will find links to my podcast episodes as well as fun items for all the history geeks out there. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.